Ah, there it is. Good. That's Mike's official full-time job, by the way. (laughs) Hey, if you're a visitor to our church this morning, man, you picked a great morning to drop in. We have been walking through the book of Leviticus for 24 chapters now, and I think I can say it's been really, really amazing. It's been really sweet to learn about God and, and his word in ways that we haven't seen. And this morning, you've come to the morning where we're going to talk about stoning someone. So, glad to have you. Now, uh, I'm going to do something that I don't usually do in a sermon, but uh, I'm going to do it this morning. I, I just want to ask everyone's full participation for this, okay? So do me a favor and raise your hand if you've been a Christian and if you've been in the church for like longer than or right around three years. Hands high. High, 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 so I can see. Don't be too cool to participate. Okay, hands down. Now, raise your hands high, high, high again if you've been in a church where they have preached through in some way through the book of Leviticus. Hands high. Throw them on up there. Any one, maybe two? Okay. Of the one, maybe two, raise your hand if during that preaching through Leviticus, they preached through this text this morning. All right. Okay. That's not too bad. But what I mean, isn't that... Nobody here has been in a church where people preach through the book of Leviticus. And part of the reason why is because of texts like this morning. Oftentimes, Leviticus is a place that you go to when you're preaching through the book of Hebrews, and you got to kind of point back to where a lot of that stuff came from, but you don't really spend a lot of time in it. And if you do preach in the book of Leviticus, you're not going to go to chapter 24. And if you do go to chapter 24, you're going to go to what we did last week, you know, the bread and the lampstands, right? Oh, that's a sweet, edifying, encouraging, uplifting message. If you're a preacher and you're trying to decide what you're going to preach on a Sunday morning, odds are you're not reaching for this morning's text. You know, Jesus feeding the 5,000 is, it goes a, a lot further in growing the membership of a church than stoning someone to death. But make no mistake about it, friends, that is what this morning's text is about. It's in our Bibles, and it is offensive. It's supposed to be. Now, let me tell you my hope for this morning's sermon. I hope that by the end of today's sermon, you will love this teaching in God's Word. My aim this morning is not to pacify you or to try to explain away the hard parts of the Bible or to coax you into or manipulate you into, or to try to use my rhetorical prowess, of which I have none, to try to get you to begrudgingly accept that this is in the Bible and that it's an expression of God's character. No, what I want this morning is for God's people to look into God's Word and love what they find there, even if it's difficult. May the Lord give me grace for the task. Let's pray. Father, I am nothing. You are everything. Your spirit is all we need to help us understand your word. So we pray that he would empower us this morning. Amen. So I've got two points for you in this morning's sermon, but before I get there, I just want to slowly walk us through the text, okay? 
just going to walk through, make sure we actually understand the moving pieces of Leviticus 24, uh, starting with verse 10. Okay, so in verse 10, we see that there is a child of mixed descent. We see that this child had a father who was an Egyptian and had a mother who was an Israelite woman. Okay, now the, the mom, as an Israelite woman, was from the tribe of Dan. If, you, if you're not like a big Old Testament history buff, uh, the tribe of Dan was the tribe that was always pretty quick to go off into idolatry, okay? Now, that's significant, and the fact that his father is an Egyptian is significant because in the days of truly patriarchal cultures, you know, we, today we talk about, you know, down with the patriarchy, okay, but, but this was really a patriarchal culture. And in those days, if the father practiced a particular religion, it was customary for the children to follow along with the religion of the father, even if they didn't follow along with the religion of the mother, usually at the expense of following along with the religion of the mother. You can see this with someone much later, like Augustine. His dad was a pagan, his mom was a Christian, so for the vast majority of his early life, he followed after his father's pagan footsteps, okay? Now, in verse 11, if you look there, you see that the mother is from the tribe... Oh, I already talked about that. Sorry, next one. Then you see that a fight broke out, okay? This, this man was involved in a fight in the camp of Israel, so it didn't happen on the outskirts. It didn't happen outside of the camp, inside of the camp. This man got into a fight. What about? We don't know. Then verse 11, somehow this led to this man, the son of the Egyptian, cursing the name. That's just a, a one way of saying he blasphemed God, we, we don't know exactly the nature of what he said, but we, knew, we know that somehow, some way, he basically said something like, Yahweh ain't nothing, okay? Your God, the God of Israel, is worthless. Something along those lines, okay? Then we see that the pagan, potentially pagan man, was taken into custody, okay? Then in verses 13 and 14, the Lord commands Moses to carry out capital punishment of the blasphemer at the hands of the congregation. That's very important. Okay, now capital punishment, if you don't know what that means, it's just referring to the death penalty. Okay, then verses 15 and 16, God tells Moses to teach the congregation again that taking the Lord's name in vain, blaspheming the name, invoking a curse with the name, it's not going to be tolerated. Okay. Then in verse 17, Moses makes a little bit of an excursus, a little bit of a, what seems like a rabbit trail. That's the whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, fracture for a fracture section. And then in verse 23, we get to the climax of the text where the blasphemer is stoned to death. Is that, is that pretty straightforward? Are you guys with me? We, we understand what's happening here? Give me an amen or something. You know? All right. So here are your two points, and I'm cheating a little because the first point has like 30,000 subpoints. but two points, keeping it simple. You should love this law because it is a just law. You should love this law because it is a just law. Point number two, you should love this law because you should Lord, love the Lord your God. You should love this law because you should love the Lord your God. All right, point number one. 
The first way in which this law is a just law is that it does not allow for partiality. Okay, you can see this when you look at verses 16 and verse 22. You see the repeated, repeated praise, right, that this applies to, quote, the sojourner as well as the native. Okay, so the non-Israelite as well as the Israelite, the Jew as well as the Gentile. We saw the same phraseology back in Leviticus 19, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And don't think that if your neighbor is not a Jew, that he doesn't count as your neighbor. He's still your neighbor, and so you still have to love him. Now, this concept of no partiality is an important aspect of true justice in any land and at all times, okay? In our own country, as is in the case with all peoples of all places of all times, we have a history of applying the law with partiality. As people in the South, we can very easily think of examples Right? A white man and a black man commit the same crime. The black man receives a more harsh sentence. That is partiality in the law, and that is sinful. It's bad. It's wrong. In other parts of the country where there was less racial tension, you could see partiality along the lines of uh, economic lines or socioeconomic lines. In the early days of this nation, believe it or not, you saw a lot laws being applied with partiality based along religious lines. You know, Baptists are kind of like the champions of the evangelical world now, but in early America, they were looked upon with some disdain, okay? So wherever partiality is, wherever law, the laws apply with partiality, it's always wrong. And the reason why God calls on his people to render judgments without partiality is because he renders judgments without partiality. Romans 2.11 says that God, quote, shows no favoritism. As he is distributing justice to the earth, he doesn't give the Jews a green light when they deserve a red light. He's never going to be like so many politicians who render partial judgments based on political favoritism or nepotism. God is never going to be like some of our ancestors who rendered judgments that favored one race over another. God is never going to be like so many socialites who render judgments according to the etiquettes and the reciprocity principles of the upper class. God always renders just judgment. So, as this son of an Egyptian stands accused of a very serious crime amongst a bunch of Jews, God wants to make it abundantly clear, so he repeats himself and says, do not apply this law with partiality. Next, this law is a just law because it has due process. Now, due process simply refers to a fair treatment through the norms of the judicial system in place, okay? In verse 10, we can see that this fight didn't happen in a dark corner somewhere. It happened amongst the people of Israel, and so they observed the fight. And then when this man blasphemed the name of the Lord, he didn't whisper it in his bedroom he did it probably right after the fight. Maybe he lost and that was his way of trying to get his get back, you know. I may have lost, but at least my God is something and your God is nothing. So the people heard that and they grabbed the guy and they took him to Moses so that he could be tried. Now, people tend to do bad things in crowds, you know. Crowds are not good. People tend to become excitable, as we've seen in recent days in our, in our own country, Right? So the text doesn't really tell us about how the crowd took this guy to Moses. You know, 
Did they, did they grab him and seize him? Did he resist? Did they have to beat him up? Did they just say, please follow me, sir, as we go to Moses? We don't really know how this happened. But we do know that the crowd didn't lynch him. You know? There's not mob violence here. What they did was they got him to the person who was at this point in time in the history of the people of Israel responsible for overseeing justice in the land. And this is significant. You think about this guy. He's, he's mixed He probably doesn't have a stellar reputation. Your dad's an Egyptian? You mean the guys who persecuted us and kept us in in bondage for 400 years? Your dad's one of them? His mom's from Dan, one of the least reputable tribes in Israel. He gets into a fight, which means as an adult, if you get into a fight, it's probably not your first fight. You're probably a brawler, and people don't really appreciate that. So really, when they heard him blaspheme the name of the Lord, the mob could have retaliated with some sort of vigilante justice And nobody probably would have been very upset about it. But they didn't do that. Not only did they not stone him on the spot, but we know from elsewhere in the Pentateuch that some kind of trial had to have been uh, carried out for this man. right? Because the same man who renders a judgment of capital punishment here in Leviticus 24 received this instruction from the Lord in Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. Right? There has to be witnesses. Those witnesses have to present evidence. People have to look at the evidence, evaluate the evidence. It's it's very much like what happens in our modern court systems. So when you read in verse 12, look there with me. That they kept him, quote, in custody until the will of the Lord became clear to them. That doesn't mean that there was some mystic experience where like they handed him over to Moses and Moses lit some candles and, you know, threw some frankincense around and said, oh God, what would you have me do? Seeking the will of the Lord there probably looked like some kind of trial where they called some of these people who saw the fight and heard the blasphemy, they called them as witnesses. And Moses listened to the case, and he sought the will of the Lord through these ordinary means that God had already established for the people of Israel. It's not like the scene from Gladiator, you know, where Caesar gives the thumbs up or thumbs down. Will he live or will he die? Moses is not in the tabernacle going, what is it, God, thumbs up or thumbs down? No, finding the will of the Lord involved a fair trial. Now, did this due process look exactly like due process looks like in America today? No, almost certainly not. But was it a just trial? Well, as far as we can tell, it was. As a matter of fact, this is the only trial leading to capital punishment in Scripture that is held up as an example of a positive exercise of this law. Everywhere else in Scripture where you see someone being stoned, it's always held up in a negative light. Something went horribly wrong and injustice was carried out. I'm going to give you three examples. I'm going to kind of fire through, through these, so note takers, try to keep up. First, you have 1 Kings 21. Very simple. King Ahab wanted a guy's land who wouldn't give it to him. He was bummed about it. His wife, Jezebel, goes, are you the king or are you the king? What's the deal here, man? Like, you want this guy's land, you go and take it. And he's like, I don't know. So Jezebel goes, I got this. And so she sets him up. She says this, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table and set two worthless men opposite him. 
See that? And let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Second, you have the stoning of Zechariah the prophet in 2 Chronicles 24. There's nothing special to report here. He prophesied against the wickedness of Israel, and so they killed him for it. They stoned him. Then third, you have the stoning of Stephen in Acts 6 and 7. There was kind of a trial there. It was more of a show trial than anything. And Luke specifically tells us that the people produced false witnesses against Stephen. And then when Stephen finally had a chance to defend himself in this trial, uh, he basically just stood up and preached a sermon. Okay? And this is how he concluded his sermon. Right? Life on the line, about to be stoned to death. Here's your chance, Stephen. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. You don't get it. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. And you have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. How do you think that went over? They covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. See, that's the mob violence, right? That's the vigilante justice that you don't see in Leviticus 24. Now, you might be thinking, with all of the abuse of this judicial system that we see recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, which do note that it is recorded in the pages of Scripture, God is not trying to hide the fact that this system was abused by sinners. The Bible doesn't try to cover up its pockmarks. But you may be wondering, with all this abuse, especially regarding capital punishment, if capital punishment should even be a thing. Well, apparently God thought that it was worth it, at least for a time. It's often been argued that a legal system such as ours, which is prone to corruption, should do away with the death penalty. Well, my intention this morning is to not give you an absolutist answer about whether or not the United States of America should have a death penalty, okay? But I do want to say that in the mind of God, at least in some way, it is possible to have a system in place that involves capital punishment, even if that system can be abused and innocent people suffer for it. Next, this law is just because there is a system of checks and balances. Checks and balances. So we can see that this system can be corrupted, but does that mean that God's just like, well, you know, what are you going to do? I gave them a system, they're going to corrupt it, and that's just going to be the end of it. That's a bummer, life in a fallen world, you know? God doesn't do that. He puts checks and balances in, places, in place. Let me show you one of them. It's from Deuteronomy 19. And it specifically has to do with capital punishment. It says, if a malicious witness, so you remember those worthless men that we, we saw from 1 King, right? So if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. It's a, it's a trial. The judges shall, shall inquire diligently and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. 
so you shall purge this evil from your midst. So if you're thinking like, man, I bet you it was just super common back in the day in ancient Israel. If somebody didn't like somebody, they'd be like, oh, he blasphemed the name of the Lord. Let's get him. No, it didn't work like that. There was a trial. And if the priests and the judges were sitting there and they inquired about you and your claim and they found that you were wrong and you were just trying to get this guy killed, they would take you out and kill you. Now, whether you like or agree with that system of checks or balances, maybe it seems a little barbaric to you in our modern sensibilities, that's an aside. The point is, is that God was not content to have a system that could be abused. And do notice that it says at the end of that, so shall you purge this evil person from your midst. In the mind of God, a person who falsely accuses is just as evil as a person who blasphemes. Think about that when you speak about your brothers and sisters in the life of the church. Next, this law is just because there is a sense of proportionality. Proportionality. That just means that the punishment fits the crime. Okay? That's what verses 17 through 22 are all about. This lex talionis, this, this, uh, the law of retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What may seem like, it, it kind of seems, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but sometimes you'll be reading the Bible and you think you're following like the author's train of thought, and then you'll hit, it seems like he just hits like a left turn, and you're like, I don't know where we are, or how, do, how we got here. I thought we were talking about one thing, now you're talking about another thing. If you're reading Leviticus 24, it may seem like he's talking about blasphemy in this story, and then he starts talking about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but you look uh, at the end in verse 23, and it says, well, they took him out and they stoned him. So what's happening in verses 17 through 22 is connected to this story. But the author just doesn't really explain how it's connected to the story. Well, that's what I'm going to tell you right now, okay? What seems like an excursus, a little bit of a rabbit trail, is actually God's explanation for the just nature of this punishment. So you can see in verse 17, the first principle in the law of retribution is that if you take a human's life, your life should be taken. Now this is drawn directly from Genesis 9-6, where it says, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. But listen to the explanation. Why a person killing another person merits that person's death? Listen to the reason why. For in the image of God has God made mankind. What God is saying here is that to attack an image bearer of God is to attack God himself. It's one, it's one step removed, but it's the same thing. So to, to murder, to unlawfully take a human being's life, is in a, in a sense an assault on God himself. And this is the kind of high treason that is deserving of capital punishment. Now, you should know two things about the rest of these laws, okay? Uh, the rest of this little section here. Number one... Uh, these were given to limit retribution. So when we think about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, we think, man, it must have been gnarly to live back in those days, right? Like if somebody hits you and knocks out an eye, then you're going to go and you're going to, you know, knock out their eye. That wasn't the design here. It wasn't supposed to say, you got me, now I can get you, and God says that that's fair play. What's happening here is that there's a limiting factor because in the ancient world, people were tend to, they would tend to try to get twice as much on you as what you got on them, right? So you knock out my tooth, I'm going to knock out your tooth and knock out your eye and burn down your house. And that way you won't mess with me ever again. 
okay? You see this in the early, in the early days of creation, right, in Genesis. Lamech says this to his wives. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So Lamech says, if you're coming for my eye, I'm coming for your whole family. This code might seem a little barbaric to us today, but you should know that it was actually very uniquely gentle and meek and loving and kind in the world of ancient law. There's something called the Law Code of Hammurabi that existed around the same time as the Old Testament. And according to that law code, if you mess with someone's property, they could kill you. But here we see God says, you can't do that. If you, if you kill my donkey, I can't take your life. We just have to make it right. You take my donkey, I'm going to give you another donkey. Okay. Now the second thing that you need to know about this is that uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it was a kind of colloquialism. You're thinking, Sean, first of all, watch your language. No, colloquialism is kind of like a, a provincial saying. It's like a, a rule of thumb, right? We kind of use them all the time here in the South. I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, but let me, let me just show you what I mean, okay? And this is, this is a direct application to this law elsewhere in the Old Testament, okay? If a man strikes the eye of his bondservant, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the bondservant go free because of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his bondservant, you see that? The eye, the tooth, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you see that? Same thing. And if he knocks out the tooth of his bondservant, male or female, he shall let the bondservant go free because of his tooth. So this is an application of this law in the life of Israel. And obviously they did not understand this law to be taken literally, right? They understood it to be principial in nature. They understood it to be a kind of maxim, right? So if I'm a bondservant and my master strikes me, I can't go and, and messes up my eye. I can't go and rip out his eye. I just get my freedom. And there's a sort of moral equivalence in that. That's what's happening here with these laws. Next, this law is just because it is public and communal. Look at verse 14. Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. In our day, when someone is sentenced to capital punishment, uh, they usually die alone in a room somewhere. There's a guy, maybe a girl, who flips the switch pushes the button, pushes the medication, and there are some witnesses, and that's how they die. But not in ancient Israel. In Israel, those who accused the man of this thing that was deserving of death had to participate in the capital punishment. If they were willing to bring such a serious charge against him that would require his life to be taken... They had to have a hand in taking his life. When I was younger, before I became a Christian, I got into a lot of fights. Uh, and some of them were pretty violent. And then I became a Christian, and I went like 15 years, I, I think up to this day, without ever hitting anybody, you know. But after I, 
I think that's true. And, and then uh, I realized after I've been saved for a while, not only have I not hit anybody, but I haven't seen anyone get hit. Like I'm just not around people who fight very often, you know? And then I saw someone get into a fight really up close and personal. You know, I was right there when it happened. And I remember when the guy rocked the other guy, boom, you know. And I remember the thud. I could almost like feel the impact of the blow. And I just realized this is really violent. What, what was at one point in time to me a very normal, casual thing, you know, you hit me, I hit you, we hit each other. That's just how life goes. When I had been a little removed from that for a time, and then I was reintroduced to it, I realized, wow, this is actually pretty barbaric, and it was kind of jarring. Now imagine that same thing, but instead of with a fist, a stone, crushing someone's skull with a rock. It's a traumatic thing. This is not something that most human beings would be able to or should be able to stomach. It's not designed by God to be something that we easily do to one another. It's not something that most of us would want to do even to someone that we hated. So when you look back on this law and you think, oh man, how terrible, how barbaric, but then you see the way that God designed it and that those who accused had to participate in it and they had to endure the suffering of inflicting violence on another human being, well, then you realize that what may at first have seemed barbaric could have, in fact, been a sort of kindness. Imagine if you had to hit someone in the head and crush their skull with a rock. Do you think you would be quick to bring an accusation against them? There's no public executioner in the days of Israel. Like in the days of the French Revolution, you know, the guy who just stands there and pulls the cord to the guillotine eight hours a day while they bring the heads of the leaders to be lopped off. That's not what's happening in Israel. There's no professional firing squad. So if you bring a charge that's going to require someone's death, you better be prepared to share in that blood. And that is a strange kind of mercy. Now, that's point one. I spent a lot of time trying to show you from the human perspective that what you may just sort of casually read and be offended by and perceive one way is in fact probably not the way that you've perceived it at all. It's an expression of a good and kind and just and righteous and loving God at a very unique time in the history of his people. Now I'm going to give you point number two. You should love this law because you should love the Lord your God. I'm going to give you a syllogism. Maybe some of you remember what that is from, I don't know, speech class. Maybe if you were homeschooled, you learned that in like kindergarten. Classical conversations, our preschoolers are learning syllogisms. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. You tracking? It's kind of like a way to make sure that we're doing logic properly. Well, now let me give you another syllogism to help you understand point number two. And this syllogism has four parts. I don't know if that's allowed, but uh, Socrates can kiss my foot. I'm going to do it, okay? The Lord loves his name. We love the Lord. We should therefore love what God loves, ergo, 
I don't know if I'm using that properly. We should love the name of the Lord. If you were here for our sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, you'll recognize that I'm about to reuse an illustration, okay? But if you weren't here, uh, man, this is going to be fresh. This is going to be good for you. Um, For those of you in our church who know Blaine, what comes into your mind when I say his name? Right? You think about his personality, his physical build, his, his past experiences, right? The first few things that come into my mind when I think of Blaine are athletic, fun, outgoing, teachable, husband, soon-to-be dad, silly, twin. Blaine speaks a certain way. He moves a certain way. He looks a certain way. He works a certain way. He has certain strengths and weaknesses that are unique to him. And all of these things come to mind when I hear his name. The same things will happen if I say, you know, Tim or Jacob or Carlton or Ursula. A name in one sense serves as a sort of summary of a person. That's why names are very important in the Bible. All of who we are tends to be captured in our name. I mean, just think about if you could ever exist with someone else's name other than your own. It just doesn't make sense. Well, the same thing is true of God. The name of God captures who he is in his very essence. So when the Lord uses his name, he is communicating all of his divine attributes and perfections. When you hear the name Yahweh, you should think omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. You should think good, kind, loving, merciful, gentle. You should think wrathful, just, and every other thing that goes along with who he is as God. What you should know about the name of the Lord, friends, is that because it captures the essence of who he is, his name is not to be trifled with. His name is not to be spoken lightly. His name is not to be used flippantly. His name is to be used to give him all honor and all glory. And God says that he does everything that he does so that his name would be glorified. Listen to what he says through the prophet Ezekiel. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So God says that his glory is inextricably connected to his name. God says to let my name be profaned profaned is to give away my glory. And you know what? God's not in the business of giving away his glory. He's a glory hog. He's not sharing any of it. And it's good that he doesn't share any of it. Because when we give glory to things that don't deserve glory, that's called idolatry. And because God is the most glorious thing in the entire universe, if he were to ever let any glory go to anyone else, he would himself be an idolater. Now when God calls the people of Israel to himself, and he calls them to be holy even as he is holy, which is all over the book of Leviticus, Part of being holy, like God is holy, is loving what God loves, caring about what God cares about. And God cares about the glory of his name. It's all throughout the pages of scripture. Everywhere that God tells his people that he does something for them, he says, hey, this isn't really about you. It's actually about the glory of my name. Let me just give you some examples. Why did he rescue his people from slavery in Egypt? Psalm 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, 
They did not consider your wondrous works, but they rebelled by the sea and at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake. Everything that God does for his people operates like this. Why does God defer his anger and not punish his people immediately when they deserve it? Isaiah 48, for my namesake. And by the way, namesake, for the glory of my name, same thing. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of the praise of my name, I restrain it. Why does God even create a people in the first place? Why does he call the people of Israel to be a people? Through Jeremiah, he says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. You weren't a people. I called you together and I made you a people. And I gave you a name and through my name resting upon you, I will be glorified. In 1 Samuel, we see that the Lord does not forsake his people even in their rebellion for the sake of his name. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake. Why does God restore Israel when they're coming back from exile, when he could have just obliterated them from the face of the earth? It is not for your sake, says the God of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am Yahweh. And we could just go on and on and on and on, because this is just the way that God talks about his name. But what I hope you see here is that not only does God love his name, but every good thing that he does for us, his people, is to increase the glory of his name through us. So if God loves his name that much, and if he calls on us to love his name that much, then we have to be zealous for the glory of his name. And a people who are zealous for the glory of the name of the Lord cannot tolerate blasphemy of the name of the Lord. Why should you love this law? Because you should love God. Because you should love his name and everything that it represents so much that when someone dares to invoke a curse with God's name or blaspheme God's name, you understand that a cosmic injustice has taken place. A cosmic injustice that is so severe that physical death doesn't even begin to cover it. You see, friends, when you understand that someone losing their physical life for this kind of crime isn't enough, then really it kind of takes the edge off of it. You know, I could try to spin this morning's sermon in such a way and kind of try to work the text in such a way as to, as to try to make it say what it's not saying, to appease our consciences, to make us feel like, oh, I'm not embarrassed by this stuff in this old part of this old book. But what does it matter if I do that in Leviticus, but throughout the rest of the Bible, we see that the God of the Bible is a God who sends sinners to hell for their rebellion. Well, what if you stop being embarrassed about stoning the people to death, but then you realize that the gospel itself says that God is a God who judges people eternally, whose wrath will be poured out on those who reject him and rebel against him and blaspheme his holy name. Friends, this text is not about the slip of the tongue or using you know, God's name in connection to a four-letter word that we shouldn't use in moments of anger. 
Remember, Jesus says that what flows out of our mouth is coming up from our hearts. So what you see with this man is, is not, it's not just an issue that he said something bad. It's that in his heart, he did not value God. He did not love God. He was an enemy of God. And all it took was the right opportunity for the contents of his heart to come up out of his mouth. You know what that's like. When you get mad and you say something that you've been holding in, you, you've had enough grace to kind of keep it together, but then you're in a, you know, something happens in traffic or your kids are driving you crazy and it finally comes out. You can't blame it on that stressful situation. That stressful situation just opened up the opportunity for what was inside of your heart to come out of your mouth. And that's what we see here happening with this man. Friends, the God of the Bible says that we must love his name and that we must fear the consequences of not loving his name, not honoring his name. In Romans, Paul says that the wages of sin is death. A little bit before he says that, he gives a a long yet not exhaustive list of sins. And then he says this. He says, it is God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And then he goes on in Romans 6 and he says, the wages of sin is death. But you can't stop there. If you stop there, you're stopping mid-sentence. Paul goes on after he says the wages of sin is death, and this is how the rest of that sentence goes. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So friends, I want to be honest with you about the Bible and what God says and about how really offensive the gospel is. But then I just want to follow that up and and tell you that Jesus says that even though all of us in our flesh without his help are blasphemers, that the great irony of the universe that only the great God of the universe could give us is that we can have redemption in the only person who never blasphemed the name of the Lord, his son Jesus. You see, Jesus died a horrific death. He wasn't stoned, but it was equally terrible equally painful, equally shameful. But he didn't just die physically. He was separated from the Father on our behalf. He suffered the penalty of God's righteous judgment for our blasphemy. He died the death physically and spiritually that we deserve to die. And now we don't have to. If we trust in Christ, we do not have to go through this. Just like this man in Leviticus 24 had to stand trial for his blasphemy, you better believe that God says that every single human being will one day stand trial before God for blasphemy. And our only hope is to be found in Jesus, who died in our place. Now, I want to give you one more thing before closing. It's obvious, I think, in this church, but maybe your visitor, you don't know this, that uh, the new covenant is different than the old covenant. And 
in the new covenant, we no longer practice capital punishment as God's people. Okay, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to try to give you a whole other sermon on that this morning. But like a lot of things, like almost all things in the old covenant, there was a shadow of the ultimate reality to come. And these blasphemy laws, they were a shadow of what we now practice in the Old Testament, excuse me, in the New Testament uh, called church discipline. That is the New Testament equivalent of these blasphemy laws. And so if you are a member of the church and you in some way sin against the God that you profess to serve and you rebel against him and you blaspheme him either with your words or with your life, God's word tells us that you should be excommunicated. That's what Amber read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. When you're excommunicated, what happens is you're put out from the membership of the church. You're put out from the light and the life of the church. And that is speaking to a kind of death that you experience as a Christian. You're being cut off from God and his people, which is really to be cut off from life itself. But in the New Testament, we see that it's not final. The hope in practicing church discipline is restoration, which only comes through repentance. And just like capital punishment in Israel was a good thing, a good thing, church discipline in the New Testament is a good thing. So if you're here this morning and all you've ever heard about church discipline is that it's mean or it's bad or it's unkind or it's unloving, none of that is true. The opposite is true. It is good, it is right, it is helpful for the church, it is in the Bible, and we should love it and practice it if we want to preserve the holiness of the church and maximally glorify the name of God. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that what we asked you for at the beginning of the sermon, you've given us. We know that you've given us eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of your law. And we thank you that we don't have to stand up and stand trial for the ways that we fail to uphold your law. We thank you that Jesus suffered in our place. Now, Lord, help us to pursue holiness as we go back out into the world. Amen.